Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Encounter Church. I want to begin this morning with a quick look ahead. This is the last part of our current series. Next week, we start a brand new one. It's, uh, it's a little different, so I want to let you know like what you're coming into, uh, what you're stepping into next week. It's called God on Mute. And what we're doing is a three-part series is we're taking a look at the three chapters of the Old Testament book of Habakkuk which is, I know, like everybody's favorite book of the Bible, but three parts, three chapters, we're kind of marching right through it. We're asking uh, some big questions, so be prepared for that. We're asking, um, how can God be good when life is not? So it's a little, it's a different kind of series, and so I want to invite you into it. I think it's really going to be, if it's not fun, I think it's going to be helpful for us. Uh, Today, though, we finish off the series, part four of four, of unfollow. So remember, uh, we started off and we're like unfollowing from noise, to be quiet, to listen for the word of God, uh, to speak in our lives. Uh, Part two of this series, we're unfollowing from hurry and trying to like calm ourselves down, finding deep rest, Sabbath rest. Part three last week was uh, unfollowing from empty religion and developing this relationship with Jesus. Today, today we're unfollowing, canceling, unsubscribing uh, from comparison. And this is, <clears throat> this is probably my favorite one, even if it's uh, maybe the hardest one uh, for us. And I'll just give you an example of just how difficult this is, how prevalent it really is. I've always been a guy, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very happy, I'm very content with my car. I'm not so much of a car guy. I've had the same car for about five years, and I've really, I've liked it, you know? And it, it even has like a fun origin story behind it. Uh, my old car, the one I had previous, I went to the gym one morning. It was very early. I came out, and my car was like, parked in the middle of the aisle in the parking lot. And I'm like, I got here early, but like, I wasn't that sleepy, right? I didn't do that. Turns out I could uh, watch the security film of a, uh, of a, big, old, a big SUV, just gas it right into my car, smash it to pieces, knock it in the middle of the parking lot, and then just drive away. I took the insurance money, totaled immediately. Uh, it was like Five six thousand dollars. I took the insurance money right over to my uh, my buddy's car lot here in Caledonia, and I said, "Like this is what I got. I want a car for this exact amount of money, not a dime more, all in." And he goes, "I don't have much, but uh, I, I I do have one. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if you're gonna like it or not, but uh, I just uh, you know my ex-wife. Yes." I just took in a trade of her old car. I could give it to you for that. Do you want to drive my ex-wife's car? And I'm like, dude, is it weird for me to drive my friend's ex-wife's car? And he's like, I don't know if there's a playbook for this. (laughs) Long story short, I took it for a test drive. You know, it's fine. It's great. I love the car. I'm driving my buddy's ex-wife's car all around. I bring it to his shop for service. It's, it's a little weird, as it turns out, but we've gotten comfortable with it. I've always been happy with it. It's a fine car. It starts most of the time. You heard that right? Uh, it's great fuel economy. The trunk pops open randomly. That's a feature. But the rest of the staff around here, they just, they know that like it does that. And so I love it when they, just, they, they know they walk by my car, if the trunk's open, they just shut it for me and just keep on walking. It's amazing. I've loved my car. It's fine. It's great. I have a commute of like four minutes. I don't even need a reliable car. I'm content. I'm content until my wife, who has a commute 10 times mine, gets a new car. And I get, in, I get into her car. 
and it's newer. And it's, and it's all-wheel drive. And it's got leather interior. It's got heated seats. The trunk stays closed. All the features. And, and suddenly, I'm in the garage now. I'm like looking left, looking right, looking at her car. And I'm a little less content. I'm a little less content now with my car. And I, I learned something. And I figured something out. I figured out this truth that I think is going to serve us well this morning. I figured out that, if, that the fastest way to kill something that you love is to compare it to something else. Just say that one, one more time. The fastest way to kill something that you love is to compare it to something else. I experienced that with my car. Some of you have experienced that in other areas of life. I want to give you four. I think you would be best served this morning as a takeaway is to ask yourself and your maker, maybe the, maybe the person that you came here with on the ride home, uh, just say, hey, of these four things, where does comparison take root in your heart the most? Uh, all of these are, are going to be the letter P because that's just as a preacher. <laughs> See what I did there? That's how I operate. Uh, first one is, uh, is performance, uh, right? Where, performance, of, performance of yourself, uh, performance of maybe a spouse, right? Of like, oh yeah, wow, you've got a, you've got a husband, you've got a wife who like empties the dishwasher all the time. That's amazing. How can you get you, uh, you know, to empty the dishwasher? Yeah, because nobody else ever wants to empty the dishwasher, right? Uh, performance of kids and like sports, at soccer, or softball. Performance of kids at school, like com- comparing the. Uh, Compared to the standardized tests and like percentiles, and it starts to get a little ugly. You know, why is your kid getting ahead and my kid's like kind of trailing behind, that sort of thing. Uh, performance place in life is another one where you start to like, you know, by this point in my life, I thought that I would be X, fill in the blank for you. You're looking left, you're looking right, and you're going, man, I thought that I'd be married, I thought that I'd have kids, but I thought that I would have some idea about a career or like what this thing could look like. And I just, I don't have that yet. Performance, place, uh, possessions is classic, right? You know, I mentioned the car thing already and maybe that's you left, looking left, looking right. Comparing vehicles, comparing cars, comparing homes is a big one. You know, I'm perfectly happy and content with my house until I go in somebody else's and it's like got the cool on-trend tile floor, you know, mid-century modern everything. I assume we're still into that. Maybe not. I don't know, because this is my thing, tracking behind. I have no idea what the trends are. We start to compare. The fastest way to kill something that you love is to compare it to something else. Uh, Four Ps. Which one takes root in your heart? Performance, place, possessions, or appearance? I recognize it doesn't start with P, but it's the best I've got. Okay, I have to do this every week. So this is is as close as we get. Appearance, right? We're looking at somebody... Perfectly happy with my appearance, right? Ladies, talking to you guys now. Uh, it's like, a, like a, I'm perfectly happy with my own hair. It's, it's long, it's nice. I like my hair. I, until I look at somebody else's hair. And it's like longer, better, or nicer. And it might not actually be real human hair. But it doesn't matter. Because in this comparison game that kind of takes off, when we start doing that comparison thing, something turns toxic. Something turns ugly. Some of us guys are looking at it going, I just wish that I had more hair, okay? That, we're losing that comparison. But like which one, which one, uh, where does comparison, looking left, looking right, take root in your heart most? It's toxic, it's deadly. Playing this comparison game, which is really a trap, will rob your joy, erode your faith, 
potentially end your career and kill your marriage or whatever relationship you find yourself into. It is that deadly. And God wants to rescue you from it. And so he gave you a path forward. And I love this. As we open it up in just a moment, I I love that he calls it a secret. And he is about to share with you the secret to ending this comparison thing once and for all. But rather than me just like tell you the secret, we're going to open up. I want to show you the secret to ending this comparison thing once and for all. Let's go to Philippians 4. We're phone friendly around here so you can follow along in your device or in a paper Bible. The words are going to be on the screen behind me as well. Philippians 4. We're dropping in right in the middle of this thing. So it's a little weird. Stick with me. Philippians 4.11 starts this way. It goes, uh, Paul's writing now, his guy, and he goes, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So bumping up against comparison, looking left, looking right, is learning to be content whatever the circumstances. I said, we're dropping into the middle of this thing. And, you know, what is... What are the circumstances that we're dropping into? Uh, Paul is uh, writing this letter, this guy. Uh, he's, he's now in prison, and he's writing uh, to a church in the city of Philippi. Uh, Philippians is the name of the letter. It's sometimes referred to as the, the prison letters, bound together with some others, because these are letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison. <laughs> Guys, those are some circumstances, right? He's writing this... He's writing this from a prison in Rome because as a Roman citizen, he is provided by the state, the Roman Empire. He's provided a trial, which he's appealed to, and while he's waiting for the trial, uh, they were to give him the minimum provisions necessary for his own survival. If he wanted anything else... I hope you have a rich friend. Paul is writing from a prison in Rome. And as he's awaiting his trial and winters in Rome get cold, his clothes are wearing out, he is going hungry. He's reflecting on life. He's reflecting on his ministry. And up shows one day a, a guy, Epaphroditus is his name. Just a saint, a gift of God for Paul in prison. Epaphroditus shows up with a check in hand. And it's like, Paul, remember that church that you started way back in Philippi? We got you. We got you. I've got a check. We can go. Uh, we can get you some provisions, some food, some actual food to eat. We can get you some warm clothes. Paul, we got you. Is Epaphroditus a rich guy? Absolutely not. It just makes the story that much more beautiful. Uh, the church in Philippi, this is a poor church. They don't have much, but what they do have wells up in their generosity and they make this gift to Paul to provide for him. He's in prison. Epaphroditus shows up. Paul is so profoundly grateful of that church for providing what they did that he wants to offer them a gift in return. Now this is a guy, he doesn't have much. So what he does want to offer is the best he has. He wants to offer them this gift the secret, a secret of contentment. 
And we're going to get, this morning, we're going to get to the secret of contentment that he shares. But on our way, there's a few steps to go through. The first step to finding that secret of contentment is this line right here. That, that, that we ought to kill comparison before comparison kills you. Kill comparison before comparison kills you. It is that deadly. Paul is writing from a prison. He knows his Bible. He knows the Old Testament, which for him was just the Testament, right? He, he knows this stuff. He, he lived the stories over and over as they were told to him. He knows this comparison game, which is really a trap, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, the very beginning, like four chapters into the Bible story, and it's already taking lives. Cain and Abel, two brothers, both farmers. Cain does produce and vegetables. Abel raises animals for meat. These two guys, they bring their offering to the Lord. This is a bit tangential, but I love the language around they bring their offering. They don't give their offering. They bring their offering because they recognize everything belongs to God anyway. So they bring their offering. Uh, Cain brings, quote, some vegetables. Abel brings, quote, the choicest animals, the, the best cuts that he has available. Uh, story unfolds. God smiles on Abel. And not Cain. Now, is it, is it the case that God prefers meat over lettuce? I mean, you could make that case, but we're not going to go there this morning. The point is that, that God, that Abel gave the choicest and Cain gave some. Uh, comparison. For the first time in the biblical story, Cain looks over to the left, to the right. He sees Abel. And the relationship that Abel has with God. And he's a comparison. It first kills his heart. Then it kills the relationship. Then Abel just goes ahead. And then Cain just goes ahead and kills Abel. It's ugly. The story continues in Genesis 25. Isaac and Rebecca, mom and dad, they have twins. Can you imagine the double blessing? Of twins, Jacob and Esau. In Genesis 25, there's this, uh, there's this line. It's so profound in just one line. It explains so much. If you know the Genesis story, it says that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah, mom, loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau, not and. Mom loved Jacob, no, no, but mom loved Jacob. You think there was some rivalry there? You think for their entire childhood there wasn't some kind of looking left, looking right? The comparison. Kill comparison before comparison kills you. It robs your joy, erodes your faith, ends your career, and kills your marriages. End it now. My favorite, my favorite story, though, and this is this was important for uh, for our theme this morning. Favorite story. Paul knows. He's seen it in the Old Testament take root. It's ugly. It's nasty. He sees it in the contemporary church, the church leadership in his day. He sees it play out. Two guys, heroes of the faith. I'm about to rag on them significantly, but I need you to know it comes from a place of recognizing these guys, heroes of the faith, Peter and John. Paul knew them as leaders in the church. But Peter and John are the guys looking left, looking right, bickering, comparing with each other all the time, constantly, like 
like children, right? Where Peter and John are like arguing. No, no, who's the greatest? I'm the greatest, not you're not the greatest. Who does Jesus love most? Jesus loves me the most. It's like, you guys, he's Jesus. It's his job to love everybody, okay? To death and back again to new life. They argue about this, looking left, looking right. The comparison game. Which is, really, which is really a trap. You know, after Peter kind of falls away, he comes back, he's reinstated. And Jesus is talking to him. He's like, Peter, you know, you're, you're back. You're in, the, you're in my fellowship. You're in my group. I want you to take a leadership position in the church that I'm building. You know, Peter, I've got a job for you, a purpose, a calling, a mission. Peter, feed my sheep. You know what Peter's question was to Jesus? What Peter says After all of that happens, feed my sheep, the mission of purpose, Peter looks over at Jesus and goes, what about John? Looking left, looking right, come on. And it's the first time you see Jesus facepalm in the the Bible. No, not really. But, But what Jesus says to Peter in that moment to finish the story, he's like, what do you care about John? I'm paraphrasing a bit. If I keep John alive until I come again, what's that to you? I gave you a purpose, a mission, a calling. Like, live it out. Peter and John have this rivalry, but I'm pretty sure that John ended up getting the upper hand because John wrote his story down. In the book of John, we've got a record. And so when John is telling the story, he can tell the story however he wants to tell the story. And so when he, when he wants to write characters into the story, you know what he calls Peter? He calls Peter, Peter, okay? When he writes himself into the story, he goes, and also, the disciple that Jesus loved. It's like eye roll emoji. Like, you've got to be kidding. Again, he's Jesus. It's his job. But that's, that's what John calls himself in his own gospel, the, the disciple that Jesus loved. And it's, not, it's more than that. They're so competitive. The comparison game, which is really a trap, is so strong with these two guys. On John chapter 20, go home, start in verse 3, and read the story on your own. It's awesome. It's Easter morning. A lot has happened. The tomb is empty. These two guys just hear about it, and they're like, we got to go check it out. And so the story unfolds in John 20 that they both, John's telling it, remember, they both took off running to see the empty tomb for themselves. And as John writes this story, he goes, the disciple that Jesus loved outran Peter. It's like... Was that necessary to say? And he's like, and then when that disciple was at the tomb, the other disciple who was behind him <laughs> showed up. And then in the same verse later, he, he goes, um, and, and then the, the first disciple, the one that Jesus loved, you know, who reached the tomb first, they're so competitive with each other that John has to say in this gospel, when it comes to a foot race, you know who's winning. <laughs> Not only am I loved more, I'm also faster, Peter. Take that. These two guys, like I said, heroes of the faith. But this is how toxic this thing is. This is how invasive, infectious this disease is. This comparison thing that takes roots in our heart. and robs our joy, erodes our faith, ends careers, and even kills marriages and relationships. It's ugly. And so we go, we, go back to, we go back to Paul in prison. In verse 12, continuing it on, we read, Paul's writing, he goes, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is 
to have plenty. I've seen the behind the scenes. I've seen the highlight reels. I've been to both places. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or what. He does this riff, whether I'm eating ramen noodles out of a styrofoam cup or I'm ordering filet mignon at the penthouse at the top of the nicest hotel in town. I have learned the secret to contentment. Let me ask you guys just for a minute, because I think this is, with all humility, I think this is probably the most important question you're going to be asked this week. When do you think Paul learned contentment? What strikes me and what we don't often think about is that Paul was probably a rich guy growing up. He had plenty. You know, he had the the best education available to him, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, hugely respected rabbi, like the the private tutor. He knew languages. He knew uh, Greek. He knew Latin. He knew Aramaic. He knew Hebrew. This guy was the cream of the crop. He was hugely respected in the the Jewish religion, authority, structure. He was holding holding all the cards for most of his life. He came from a lot. I think that the idea of waking up in the morning hungry and not going to the pantry to find something to eat, that was a new experience for him. I think that wearing out his sandals, wearing out his jacket, and and having to put them back on again was a new experience for him. When does he learn contentment? Was it in plenty or was it in want? If the antithesis of comparison is contentment, I'd like us to remember this. Contentment isn't getting what you want. Contentment is realizing what you already have and who you are. That's good. But that's not the secret. I think Paul gets a a hushed voice if he's dictating this. And he goes, this is the the secret. 13. I can do all this. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, some of you have seen this. It was a a different translation. You've seen this verse. I can do all things. I picked this one instead. I think it's more accurate. I can do all things through him who gives. Some of you saw this saw this passage probably on the back of a t-shirt of the guy running the 10K in front of you at a race. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Guys, just a bit of, uh, a bit of advice on some context in reading the Bible. Um, God never said that he will help you finish the 10K. I read the Bible. He never promises that, right? That's taking this grossly out of context When he goes, I can do all things. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul is saying, I can find contentment. I can learn on being content with bless. On the ramen noodles, I can learn to be content looking left with less than him, looking right with less than her. I can be content because Because I've got a prize that's more than just beating him 
or outpacing her. I've got a prize that's so much more than all of that. Two things, the secret of contentment, two things. The secret is this. Number one, remember what you have. Remember what you have. Paul has to remember what he has. This is, um, Philippians is four chapters long. It ends in kind of this, you know, greetings, kind of a holiday greeting card. And just like, oh, hey, uh, Make sure to give some greetings from this person and this person. He's just like listing off people at the end of Philippians. It's the place when we're reading our Bibles that we just kind of tune out. Because we're like, I got no idea who these people are. What's he talking about? I'm pretty sure I'm just snooping on somebody else's conversation. I'll skip that. No, no. It's included for a reason. One of the groups that he gives uh, some greetings from at the end of Philippians is some of the believers who are now within the household of Caesar himself. Remember what you have. Paul has very, very little, almost nothing. He's in prison. He's in chains. But the thing of it is, the thing of it is, church, is that he thinks, they think that he's their prisoner, but he knows that they're his prisoner. He's in chains next to a guard. He uses that time remembering what he has. He's got a gospel to proclaim. He's got got a hope to share. He's got a story to tell. And so he's in chains. They think he's their prisoner. He knows they're his prisoner. Hey, fella, how long is your shift? Because I got 12 hours of content to go on and on about all of the things that God has done and how Jesus came into this world and died and then raised back to new life, new life for you, God. And some of them, many times, over the course of potentially many shifts, started believing. Remember what you have. Wherever you are, with what little you have, remember what you have. You have a gospel to proclaim. You've got a hope to share. You have a story to tell in the name of Jesus. Remember what you have. And second, remember what you're worth. Remember who you are. See, this is the, this is the nasty thing about races. I don't know a lot about races, but I know that looking left and looking right is probably the fastest way to lose a race. This is the nasty thing about running in a race like this, is that when you look over to the left and you see whatever your, whatever your P is, maybe it's place, and you look over at somebody and you're like, hey, you know what? I'm way ahead of him. You know, I, I've got a career. I kind of know what I'm, what I'm supposed to do in life. You know, I'm maybe married. I got a, I got a kid. I got another one on the way. Ha, old college roommate. You know, I'm really, really smoking him. It's ugly. And it, and it gives us this ugly, this smug sense of superiority. And this is what also happens. You look over to the right, and you see somebody, you see somebody who's maybe like, up ahead of you, right? Maybe, uh, maybe it's a performance that they're just crushing their job. Maybe you guys work together and like the sales comps, you know, the number of deals you close, like whatever it is, they're just running ahead of you and you're putting in long hours and going in on the weekends and you're just not getting ahead. And you look over to this guy at the right and he's ahead of you now and you're looking with this 
with this desperate sense of inferiority. That's what the comparison game, which is really a trap, that's, that's how it gets you. That's how you fall behind. That's how it robs you of your joy, erodes your faith, ends your career, and kills your marriages. Because whatever game you're playing, you still lose. There is no win in comparison. Because you're looking left at the guy that you're now ahead of, and it gives you this smug sense of superiority. You're looking right at the lady now who's smoking you, and it gives you this desperate sense of inferior superiority or inferiority. Doesn't matter. None of it honors God. There is no win in comparison. But there is a race to be had. Let's close, close on uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1. I love this line. It's rumored to have been written by Paul. We don't know that for sure, but I like to think that it is, where Paul writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, recognizing that sometimes we're playing against those witnesses instead of along with those witnesses, but still, we're surrounded by this great cloud. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. I think the greatest hope that I have as a follower of Jesus, the greatest hope that I have in my life is knowing that there's a race marked out specifically for me. I hope you get that. I hope you go into your week, not looking left, not looking right, but I hope you know going into your week that you have a God who marked out a race specifically for you. My wife is into this, uh, this, this digital poet uh, and uh, artist, Morgan Harper Nichols. You can Google her. She does some fine work. But what my wife did is she went online, bought the digital art, printed it out and started posting it around the house. I'm so grateful that in our, uh, in our bedroom we have one of the pieces and it's framed and it simply says, take heart, breathe deep. You are not missing what's meant for you. I know the artist and I know she's a Christian and I know what is meant. I know what is meant by those words. In this context of Hebrews 12, I know that she knows and that I know that there's a race marked out specifically for me. The fastest way to lose that race is to look over at the left and try to win the race that's marked out for someone else. Church, you can't win my race. I can't win your race. But run the race marked out for you. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Whether that race is 50-meter dash ahead of you or 10,000-meter marathon, there's a race marked out for you. And just past that finish, that finish line is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. The prize is Jesus. Fix your eyes on that prize. These days I know what my race is that's marked out for me. I know that it's, it's three things in a specific order. 
I know that every morning I'm to wake up and to be reminded that I am a child of God, loved to death and back again to new life. I know that I'm a husband and I'm a dad. And then last, I know that I get to be a pastor in the church of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's an honor. But I also know that fixing my eyes on Jesus means there's an order to these things. That I can't be a good husband, a good dad, if I'm not first reminded daily that I am a child of God, loved to death and back. I know that I can't be a very good pastor in the church of Jesus if I'm not loving and if I'm not serving my family well and then being reminded daily that I'm a child of God. This is my race. This is how I'm... I'm locking my eyes on Jesus at the end, my prized possession that I'm racing toward. What are you racing on? My unsolicited advice, take a look at those four Ps. Appearance, place, the other ones, (laughs) possessions, performance, and just three words. Run your race. Right now, we're going to move into a time uh, of communion, and I just want to set it up for a little bit, especially if you're new and maybe this is odd or uncomfortable, and that's okay. Instructions to follow. We've got a few of our indoor greeters coming around with uh, communion supplies. If you didn't grab one on the way in, just throw a hand up, and they'll make sure to, uh, to get you one. Uh, if you're watching online, I want to invite you to celebrate as well. Uh, this is a great time to press pause if you need to grab a, some water, juice, bread, or a whatever you have available to you. Uh, we're one church in many, many locations. How this is going to work is you received one of these, and we're all going to take it at the same time together as a demonstration of our unity and our geographic distance. And, uh, and there's a top layer that you're going to want to peel back first, exposing the cracker. And I use that term in the loosest possible sense. I'm not sure what it's made of in particular. And then there's a, another uh, there's another lid below that one to access the juice. This is artificial, right? I mean, we can agree on that. Uh, this is a down payment. This is a sign of what's to come. That this bread represents and points us to the body of Christ. That this juice, as pale of a picture as it is, it reminds us and it points us to the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf it's an artificial thing the authentic version of this is around your tables in your cars in your friend group in your families to have a meal together and to ask each other what is the comparison that takes root in your heart and how are you fixing your eyes on jesus to run your race that's the authentic version but for right now as we gather into communion at all of our locations at Kentwood, Fulton Heights, and wherever you're watching from at home. Church, I'd like to invite you to stand as we celebrate this all together. We're going to hear these words, and we're all going to take this at the same time to demonstrate our unity in Jesus. If you're uh, you're uncomfortable with this, if you're unsure, I just want to say that this is a safe community for you. If you don't know what you believe yet, it's okay. Even if you just picked one of these things up already, it's okay if you don't participate. If this isn't your time yet, it's not your time yet, and that's all right. I'm just glad you're here. Uh, Others of you are maybe new to...
this church, maybe you're new to the church in general, and you're like, I don't know, should I take this, should I not? If you're fixing your eyes on Jesus, if you're casting off the sin that entangles, please celebrate with us, even if this is your first time at Encounter Church or church in general. Hear these words that the church has been reciting for thousands of years. On the night that Jesus was betrayed in his upstairs apartment, he took the bread and breaking it, he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance. In the same way, after the meal, he took the juice. He took his glass of wine and raising it up, he said, this is the blood which represents my new covenant, a covenant of love. Do this and remember me. For 2,000 years, the church has called these the gifts of God for the people of God. We're going to sing a new song right now called Pride of a Father. We don't typically introduce songs after the message like this. I wanted to do it like this. I'm excited to do it like this because of how well the song fits to our theme this morning. And also because of what Jesus accomplished in this meal that we just celebrated, what this points to is that the Father, when he looks at us, he doesn't see the sin that entangles. He doesn't see people stuck in a comparison game, which is really a trap. He sees all the imputed righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, given to us on that day that he beat death once and for all. And so God, we come to you. We come to you as our father. And Jesus, we come into your presence as the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And Spirit, we come into your presence as our counselor and comforter in the times of loss, in times of defeat. And God, we recognize that when you look at us, you don't see the sin. You look at us even while we're a long way off. And you look at us with the pride of a father who loves us to death and back again to new life. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group, or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.